It's one of the, uh, not rules, but customs that Buddhist monks, we don't run. And one of the reasons for that is that uh, many years ago, when I went to see one of these very lovely monks uh, at this monastery, uh, Putok, and he was telling me there of all the stories of the old forest monks years ago. And as one of those forest monks, you know, you'd wander from place to place, uh, sometimes just staying alone in the jungle. But it was a custom that when you went to these places in the jungle, you would always check in with the local village, first of all. And the reason you do that is because and so they knew there was a monk there and they could expect that monk the following morning on arms round. And also they could give some advice on nice places to stay and where there's like a supply of good water, you know, for drinking or washing. So this forest monk came to this village and uh, the forest monk was advised by the headman of the village that not to stay in the forest that night because there was a tiger uh, in that jungle who'd actually uh, eaten many of the water buffalo and even a couple of children as well. It was a very dangerous tiger. And this monk said, I'm not afraid of tigers. I'm a forest monk. I said, look, you know, you won't lose any credibility if you stay in the village with us. That's a dangerous tiger. He said, no, I want to face the tiger. So that so the lay people, they led him out of the village. And you can see where the tiger trail went through the jungle. He said, this is where I'm going to meditate tonight and await the tiger. And so they thought, oh, that's a very brave monk. So he put up his water, uh, his uh, umbrella and mosquito net there and then they left him because they didn't want to face a tiger that was a monk's job <laughs> and he sat there in meditation as the sun went down and it got darker and darker until you couldn't see anything when it gets darker it always gets more scary that's why we tried to turn the lights down last night when we told the ghost story but it wasn't enough but anyway, so there he was sitting under his umbrella mosquito net in the dark, couldn't see anything. And after an hour or two, that's when he heard it. The sound of an animal coming along that track towards him. And as he was meditating there, he was doing the meditation. I did mention this in passing earlier on about buddho, along with the breath. Breathing in, put, breathing out, oh, to. It's quite peaceful. But then he did notice, as this animal came closer, it started changing a little bit. Instead of buddho, it became buddho, buddho, buddho. <laughs> And as it came even closer, he realized it was a big animal. Buddha, 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 Buddha. <laughs> and then he did have a flashlight. So he turned on the flashlight. He saw this was huge tiger coming right towards him. And he said, he doesn't know what happened next because his mindfulness totally disappeared. And then he was outside of his mosquito net. And he was running to the village. He really was afraid. And his butto, butto, butto totally disappeared. And there was tiger, tiger, tiger. <laughs> and it explains, you know, why monks should not run. And the reason is these robes, I mean, sometimes, look at me, sometimes they start falling off and I'm not doing much at all. If you run, first of all, your outer robe slips off. And then the under robe starts slipping off. And even the waist, you know, they're wrong that also starts to slip off. And he was so scared running, he didn't realize all of that. So he came into the village, 
sort of uh, keeping nothing secret, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) Tiger, tiger, tiger! (laughs) And I was a forest monk who wasn't afraid of tigers. (laughs) So that was actually Ajahn Juan was the monk's name. Very wonderful monk. But unfortunately he was one of the other monks who was killed in that plane crash in 19, whenever it was, I think 79 or 80 or something. But anyway, he told me that you never know if you'll be afraid or not until actually you see that snake or you see the tiger. Ajahn Chah told me, I mentioned about the elephants, you bang the baby elephant on the trunk. That's really cruel, but he said that will save your life. And he also mentioned that so tigers, he said, you don't have to be afraid of tigers, Ajahn Brahm, because there's no record of tigers eating monks. And I could never argue with Ajahn Chah, but afterwards when I be- went back to my room I thought, that doesn't make sense logically. Of course there'll be no record. The tiger won't confess, <laughs> and the monk will be eaten, he can't say anything. <laughs> That didn't reassure me at all. But later on when you find out about the power of meditation, you find out, yes, uh, if you're peaceful, the tiger won't eat you at all. But it was one of those monasteries, a few tiger stories. Um, He was staying in one of these forest monasteries and he was walking back from the the hall after the evening meeting. And as he was walking back, a tiger in the jungle jumped right in front of him. And he was only a young Western monk, he was from Adelaide. And he was in IT. He became a monk because he didn't like the stress of working in such a company. But then when he looked at that tiger, they stared at each other for about 20 minutes. Because apparently that's, as long as you keep eye contact with the tiger, sometimes, well this is what I'm told, I haven't tested it out yet. And no one one has ever told me it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the tiger can't really attack you. So anyway, they worked for him anyway. The tiger just jumped in the jungle and went somewhere else. But after that he decided it's far less stress working in an IT company <laughs> than being a monk facing tigers in the jungle. <laughs> so anyway, uh, oh, I should tell you my tiger story. I have been face to face with a tiger only about, actually, about as far away as you are now. And the tiger, big tiger, was staring at me. You know, but I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared. The reason why, because <laughs> that tiger was in a cage in the zoo. <laughs> I don't lie, sometimes I deceive you a little bit, but <laughs> not real lie. But anyway, I did mention that sometimes that the animals in a forest, and this makes a lot of sense to me, are more afraid of human beings than human beings of you. And so also that if you are peaceful and quiet you have nothing to be afraid of. We don't have tigers in this forest here. We do have some snakes, but you very rarely see them. And one thing we do have though is the emus. And the emus, very big birds, and they're always just very anxious birds. I remember seeing one over down in Manchimup, it was running all over the place. I said, no, relax, calm down, it couldn't do that. It was always just very active, very restless. But there was, before we built Jaina Grove, there was a family of emus used to live here. I think they've gone deeper into the, the forest now, because very rarely see them. But one of our Anagarikas, one day he was just meditating, just a little bit further west than where Jarnagrove Grove is now. A nice, beautiful open area, sitting on a rock, quietly meditating in his white clothes. And he heard the emus come. And then one of the emus you know, was looking at him, this emu just was trying to figure out what the heck this is. Someone wearing white with a bald head, which wasn't moving. 
So apparently the emu came right up to him and with its big beak sort of sniffed him. And he said that was such a weird experience. He wasn't afraid, he was just quite happy that such an experience could happen. And then the emu just, the monk wasn't sort of uh, reacting at all, the emu just hopped a little bit away to join the rest of his friends. That's such a rare occurrence with something like an emu you know, in the wild. But anyway, that is just saying that how if you're peaceful, it's amazing just how that gives you a sense of safety. And the animals realize they can pick it up, you're not a threat. So there's no reason why they should run. Even the animals are lazy, they won't run away unless they have to. Also remember just you know, the kangaroos which used to cross the road. Um, it's still a few um, cross the road and get hit by the cars sometimes. I still remember coming back from a talk late one night and there was a kangaroo at the bottom of Kingsbury Drive. So of course we saw it, it was hopping up Kingsbury Drive, our road, and then uh, you know, we said, come on, get off to the side so we can pass you. This kangaroo wouldn't go to the left nor to the right, it just went up. You know, boom, boom, boom. That's a very steep incline on Kingsbury Drive. And every now and again, the kangaroo would turn around to look at us and say, get off the left, the right. And you can see it panting. It was really getting tired, jumping up <laughs> Kingsbury Drive, just up. I said, come on, go to the left, go to the right. And it wouldn't, it just got down the middle, so we couldn't pass it. And I felt so much compassion for that poor kangaroo. By the time we got to the top of Kingsbury Drive, that kangaroo was exhausted. It was panting. So sometimes you think, yes, you've got some good exercise there, Mr. Kangaroo, but next time go to the left and be right, be smart. So anyway, because there's no way we would ever hurt it or do anything with it except just be kind to it. So, those are living with animals in the forest. And remember that story I said about Ajahn Chah's in the still forest pool? Once these animals come out, if you're peaceful and calm, you don't react, you don't say, wow, or you don't say, ooh, scary, or you don't get your camera out and click, click, click. That was another occasion, one of the forest monks in Thailand, they found his body, he'd been killed by an elephant. They knew he'd been killed by an elephant because had these photos, they had a camera, and you can see in the shots in the camera, about three shots, before the last one was taken. You could see him just photographing this uh, elephant and then you could see the elephant turning around towards him in the second one and the third one you could see the elephant's eyes get very, very wide and then the fourth time, there wasn't a fourth shot, they just found his body. Obviously the elephant didn't like having his photograph taken. That's like monks or nuns, please always ask if you want, if you can take their photograph. We're not elephants, but... <laughs> but anyway, that's why you're kind to animals instead of being up, um, trying to capture them with a photograph or by trying to um, touch them or interfere with their lifestyle. Can you imagine what it must be like? Suppose there was a tiger and the tiger just wanted to pat you on the shoulder with its... What would you do? <laughs> You'd run away. So if you see a nice little animal and try and pat them on the shoulder, of course, how do you think they feel? That's why we always try and be kind to the animals. We can watch them, we can chant for them, we can put out water for them, but just don't try and touch them or um, uh, try and control them at all and then you can enjoy the animals in nature. But anyway, with the nimittas and the deeper meditations, that is one excellent way of learning how to be still. And you may think that, oh yes, but I'm not that deep in meditation, but it can sometimes help. One of the Thai ladies who comes to Ophodana, her husband was a photographer for the Sunday Times here in Perth. He says it's a pretty boring job because Quite honestly, nothing much happens in this town. Maybe Sydney or somewhere, but this is like a bit of a backwater. It's not the capital city of Australia, and it's one of the most isolated cities in the world. 
But then his editor called him into the room and said, there's a rumor going around. We've got information, it might be right, it might be wrong, we don't know, that that pop singer Kylie Minogue has had a breakdown and that she's resting in the Cable Beach Resort in Broome. It's only a rumour, we don't know if it's true or not, we can't find out because, you know, she's obviously, if she is up there, uh, she's living up there secretly for a while. But he said, I want you to go up to Broome and Cable Beach Resort and find out. That's one of the most beautiful parts of the world, up there. And so a free trip up to Cable Beach Resort, he couldn't refuse it. And so he went up there, and the only way to find out, you know, if there was any truth to that rumour, is actually just to go under the fence, crawl through the bush, and look. And then he said, in all his years of being a photographer of the newspaper, this is his one big moment, the scoop of a lifetime. He saw Miss Monogue just in one of the huts there. And how could he get the photo, the picture? And I don't know whether to be proud of this or guilty about this. He remembered my story, the still forest pool. <laughs> <laughs> he was so still as he, raised, as he raised the camera and so mindful as he clicked the shutter <laughs> so that she would not notice she was being watched. And he got his shot. He said it was syndicated throughout the world, of course. His editor was very proud of him. And I said, but you know, she was there to have a rest. That was a bit sort of um, uncompassionate. And he said, yes, I know, but he wasn't a monk. <laughs> so sometimes these little stories can be a benefit in places you never expect. <laughs> but anyway, going back to... Uh, these nematodes when they come up. Sometimes they can come up at all sorts of times. And sometimes unexpected. Please excuse me, but I did ask Eileen um, uh, this morning, because uh, this morning someone did fall off their chair when they were meditating, and I thought, wonderful! Did you see any stars? Because that star might be your first experience of nematodes. <laughs> but people do see those nematodes. And one of the times, and I say this because each one of you will see a nematode, you know, within, I don't know how long, but in some of you not that long. And those nematodes, I think you may be able to uh, remember those stories when people die. Either have a near-death experience or they really completely die. And have you heard them tell the tales? They say that they see this light and they go towards the light. That's one of the ways if somebody is dying and sometimes people know that story so well they give them advice, and when you don't want them to die, say, don't look at the light, don't look at the light, don't go towards the light. Because that's what happens. Sometimes you may be wandering around a little bit, but then you see a beautiful light comes to draws you in. You've all heard that before, I'm sure. Some people, you're told this is not your time yet, so you come out. Or you go in there, and that's what you remember from past life memories. Now, what is that light? And of course, that light is how your mind looks. It's your jitter. And why does it happen when you die or you have a near-death experience? What is a near-death experience or death but just the five senses get turned off? That's a lot of time. I remember asking some doctors, you know, when a person dies, how do you know they've dead? And often they say, it's the old ways of doing things, they still use that. They open their eyes and put a light in the eyes to see if the sight reacts there at all. Or they, uh, they shout into your ear, are you dead yet? <laughs> 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 
they don't say that, but anyway, they try and get a response from your five senses. So when you actually die or have a near-death experience, your five senses turn off. If it's a near-death experience, it's temporary. What happens there, you do see a light. And that light is exactly the same which you see when you are meditating, in the deep meditations, when your five senses get subdued. Now the thing with the meditation, they don't have to turn off totally yet. They're just so, um, so calm, so peaceful, that the energy of your mind dominates. And that is the major sense which is happening at that time in deep meditation. And because the mind is what's happening, when I say the five senses, it's not just actually seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. It's all the thinking, the plans and memories about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, which comes up. And all the dreams, the images, the fantasies about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And that actually keeps those five sense world very active. And when that five sense world gets kind of calm and suppressed, suppressed or not repressed, or it gets restrained, that's the word I was looking at, gets restrained, then the mind receives all the power, you know, from your life. It's like energy is not wasted. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking about that world. So it all goes into your mind. Your mind kind of wakes up. And in this world, that's where you get these beautiful images of the, of the, what I was saying yesterday, of the bamboo floor, or of the grass, the sea world and a grain of sand, all that stuff. That's what happens. So if you are seeing sort of even the lake and see it's so beautiful and watch the moon and it's gorgeous, more gorgeous than usual, that is a sign that your five senses are being uh, restrained and the mind is getting stronger. Yeah, you're still seeing the moon, but you're seeing it in a different way. The mind uh, component of that experience is increasing in its power. And then if you close your eyes, sometimes you still see a beautiful light. But this time, you know, you know it's a mental image of the, the mind. So when these things first arise, I tell you all of this, and some people say, oh, Ajahn Brahm, it's too deep for me. I find it even hard to sit for, still for 15 minutes. No, you may think it's deep, but honestly, you don't know how close you are. Sometimes just one little uh, different way of looking, one just I call it just pressing the letting go button. The letting go button is just one button and everything starts to disappear and you get very blissed out and see these beautiful lights. And I'm not exaggerating that. I've been teaching a long time. And sometimes people, oh, they're just sitting down here. And sometimes, again, they think, oh, what's the point of trying? Sometimes when you get frustrated Frustration can be good if you know how to deal with it. It means the old way you've been doing things is not working, so don't do it that way. Try a different way. Try to just to let go and be calm. One of the, the ways of meditation, which is very powerful, and I'm going to introduce it here. I've introduced it to a few of you while you've come on the interviews. I don't know if I have mentioned it here, but anyway, you know, when you talk a lot, you can't remember what you said yesterday, what you said today, uh, especially if it's a long retreat, and I talk so much, and it's interviews as well, and going to Bodhinyana Monastery and talk to people there. That was the Empress Three Questions meditation. Now is the most important time. I mean, I said that many times, Empress Three Questions, but I used it in meditation. It's the only time which matters in meditation right now. What is the best meditation object, or the most important meditation object in the world? And this is where it turns into something which you can do, and which makes meditation so easy, and so profound. The most important meditation in the world is not the breath, it's not nimittas, it's not jhanas. The most important meditation object in the whole world 
is whatever is in front of your mind right now. Whatever that is. So you're restless. Restless is about the past. Where you've come from, you haven't been able to stay still in the past. But what's happening right now? What are you aware of in this very moment? And don't judge it, so I'm not supposed to be aware of this, I'm supposed to be aware of something other than this. That is not really being mindful. That is being rejecting. That's wanting something, that's suffering. Instead, what is it you're aware of right now? And number three, what to do with it? You don't try and hold it. You don't try and reject it. All you do is you care for it. Care and caring. So care is like being mindful, but caring as well. And with that sort of attitude, now is the most important time. Whatever is in front of you right now in your mind, that is the most important meditation object in the whole world. And the only thing to do is care for it. Not to judge it or assess it, just to care for it. Now, you, you may remember that, I think, um, last night, I told you of Ajahn Chah's simile of the uh, mango orchard where the, the trees were planted by the Buddha. What did Ajahn Chah say? To get those mangoes, you have to sit perfectly still in the moment and just hold your hand out and a mango will fall in. I could see the almost identical to the Emperor's Three Questions meditation. Now the most important time. Whatever's in front of you right now, the most important, care for it. You do that, and these things happen. You get these great limiters, and it gets totally unexpected. You know why it's unexpected? Because you're not doing anything. You're in this moment, paying attention to what's here right now without any, dis any discrimination, not rejecting some things as not being good enough, not hoping for other things which would be better, but whatever it is right now. And you're caring for it, that's all. You do stuff like that, and then you start seeing some lights in the mind. One of the reasons why you keep your eyes closed is because it is almost certain that what you're seeing is a limiter, and it's not some imagination or some light being reflected from somewhere. I didn't mention that's the way why we dis, uh, why we design this hall this way. In the direction you're facing, is there any source of light? You know, which can uh, you can be deceived that that's some sort of limiter? Of course, there isn't. So you can actually trust that what you see is a light from the mind. Some people still get confused and they say, no, no, it can't be, my meditation's not that good. Don't think of yourself so poorly. But anyway, there's lots of people who say that, they see a limiter, say, that was a limiter, well done. And they say, no, it can't be, not me. And then so I give them one of these uh, compliments to Singapore Airlines who have these uh, iPads you know, these eye covers. So I give them out, load them out, put those on. But I don't know why in the United States language, I, uh, oh sorry, in Australian language, iPad means one of these uh, masks you put on to cover up your eyes. But over in Australia, an iPad means one of these IT devices. And I must admit, I confessed, I was really cheeky and naughty that I offered this monk, one of the monks in Bodhinyana Monastery, um, people have offered me a couple of iPads, would you like one? <laughs> and he said, what brand is that? Is it, is it an Apple or is it, a, is it a Samsung or whatever? That's the Singapore Airlines and I came out and said, get out of here. <laughs> I don't know if I should have done that, but anyway, he fell for it. <laughs> So when you put those on, it means you, you know you're blocking out all possible um, light from outside. It has to come from inside. Now when those things first come, it's because the way we usually react to them, we're surprised, we don't know what to do. You know, if you've heard about them, 
and you sometimes can get excited, and that's why sometimes they fade away. So one of the first types of nimittas which you can see is what I used to call the firework nimittas. I, know I say that because somebody, even on the interviews, said it was like fireworks the first time they got some nimittas. That's what it's like, you know, it just, it's very bright, but just fades away too quickly. But then your mind is peaceful enough, it comes back again. That's nice, I mean, enjoy. But then, after a while, it settles down and becomes more peaceful and stays longer. But I also remember just one of the uh, young men who was my attendant at one of the retreats over in Kuala Lumpur some time ago. When I first mentioned Nimitas, I also mentioned that sometimes we see like a sheet of light. It doesn't matter what color it is, but sometimes it can look a bit dirty, stained. And I say, the reason why that is the case is because people don't keep their precepts. This is your mind, your jitter. It's defiled. And in other words, it's, got, it's like a white piece of cloth which needs to be put in the washing machine to get it cleaned up. And that's, you can't avoid seeing that because it's, you know, you're jitter, you can't hide from it. And that's why one of these attendants came up, wanted an urgent interview, and he said, I've seen my nimitus. And they're so smudged and grimy. He said, yeah, what have you been doing? He said, yeah, that's a problem, I'm sorry, I jumped wrong. <laughs> he wasn't keeping his precepts all that well. And it's an automatic honesty, you can't get away with this. You can't hide it, this is what you see. But then I told him the trick. This is, you know like lawyers have loopholes, meditation teachers have the same. If you see a nimitta and it's a bit smudgy, it's not really bright and pure and, and clean, what to do is, on that area which you're seeing, look for the most beautiful part. doesn't matter just how dirty the, uh, the cloth is, there's always one part of it which is cleaner than the rest. So zoom in on that part, focus in on that part. So you've got this smudges all over the place, but then there's one part which is clean, you zoom in on that. And then that kind of opens up and fills the mind with a much cleaner piece of cloth. And you zoom into the most beautiful part of that. Keep zooming in, and then you find this beautiful piece of cloth. It's very bright and clean. But I said at the same time, please look at your precepts. <laughs> and, and don't keep messing around. The nice part of that is you can't hide from this. It's not you telling you just how you're behaving. And that idea of zooming in is also very useful if you start to see what I sometimes call like a complex limiter. And one of those complex limiters which I remember seeing years ago was a like a scene of some uh, a countryside scene with nice green fields and a river in the valley and nice trees everywhere on a nice sunny day. And it was like gorgeous. And now it's important to tell me this is not fantasy, this is a limiter. If it hasn't got that sense of beauty there, you know the mind is really quite dull, it's just like a fantasy or a dream. But when it looked beautiful, I realized, yeah, this is a limiter, but it's too many objects in it. So what I did, and I must admit, I, don't, I cannot recall wherever I learned this, but it was almost like intuitive. I say intuitive at the time, but these days I would say, oh, that came from something which I learned in a previous life. And you learned in the people, you can't forget, you can't remember exactly where and when, but also you can't forget it. Many of those teachings of Ajahn Chah, I thought I'd forgotten, but they were just held there somewhere, and when I needed them, they would come up. It was weird. You know what I said about the, the mango orchard? Didn't understand at the time. In fact, I rejected it. I thought that's a stupid teaching. Not just silly, but you know, being quite negative towards Ajahn Chai. But later on, you know, when it became important for me, I could recall it. Weird, just the way that good teachings are like planted in you. 
and they come to fruition later on. So anyway, so what I did, I noticed that one of the trees on the tip of one of the leaves, you know how many leaves a tree has and how many trees were in this lovely uh, scenic uh, rustic scene? I saw that one on what the edge of one of the leaves was a dewdrop, which was sparkling in the sunshine. And automatically, I zoomed in on that. I say automatically because there was no will involved. It was almost like that drew me in. And from that little uh, sparkle came this incredible gorgeous nimitta. That's how it works. Whatever you're watching, there's always something you can focus on in the middle which is more beautiful, more pure than anywhere else. And that means you've got this wonderful nimitta in you. There was another time, because I remember reading uh, some of the books once about nimittas. I know that sometimes some people say, oh, Ajahn you are just following the commentaries. They have one commentary, especially the Visuddhi Magga, you know, which talks about nimittas. But honestly, I've never read that book. When somebody accused me of just grabbing all these details from somewhere else, I decided, I was resolved, I'm not going to read the Visuddhi Magga anymore. So I can hold my line that all this stuff comes from the suttas and your own practice. But I was told, and I did, I did read a page or two of the Visuddhi Magga, but not the whole thing, not so systematically. In there, they ask you to actually, when you have a nimitta, just expand it, so contract it, play around with its shape. And of course, once I heard that, I decided that's what I can do, just see what happens. But then it started to destroy the peace and stability of the nimitta. Trying to expand it and put it uh, small. And I realized and noticed what shape it was. If you're trying to expand it, make it big or small, you're, you're uh, destroying the unity of that object. You know, you're actually watching the edge. It's on the edge where you can find out small or large. I preferred watching the middle, the most beautiful part. So there was no real perception there, big or small. What is a big nimitta or a small nimitta? Is it round, is it oval, whatever? Again, to know if it's round or, or oval or square or diamond or whatever, that again is just seeing the edges. Instead of seeing the edges of the slide in your mind, just go to the center. And don't concern yourself about the edges, how big, how small. So I totally reject that practice these days. Instead, just see how beautiful it can be. Because those nimittas, that light gets more and more beautiful. But again, with complex nimittas, it's not only just fields. There was, on one occasion, I thought about telling this ghost story last night, but it's not like a real ghost story, it's just how your perception works. On one occasion, my nimitta was of this monster. So really peaceful, and this monster appeared in my, my mind. Yeah, this was a long time ago, before the punks. You know, the punk movement, you know, that type of fashion. Because these monsters had spiky hair. Where, fashion-wise, I was way ahead of my time. <laughs> had spiky hair, had his bulging eyes, like they were going to come out of the sockets. And had teeth with, not teeth, fangs. Like sharpened. And had a skull skulls around his neck, like not Angulimala, he only had figures. This was actually shrunken human skulls it was wearing. And his, his, uh, that's why his tongue was poking out. <laughs> I know I enjoyed doing that. Can I do it again? <laughs> and right in front of me. And honestly, I was too peaceful to be scared. So what I thought to do, you know, it's a nimitta. A nimitta is, you know, you can interfere with nimittas. And so I decided to have some fun, which is my nature. And so, spiky hair, 
I put a straw hat on top of it. Just imagine the hat that was there, and it was there. This hat on this monster, and then its eyes were bulging out, looked really scary. So I, I put a pair of Ray-Bans on, you know, sunglasses. <laughs> and its teeth, it had all its sharp teeth poking out, and I decided to blacken a couple of teeth, like it needed to go to the, the demon dentist pretty quickly. And I put, in those days, I put a cigarette in the edge of its mouth, you know, which was lit. All I did was imagine that, and of course, it appeared there. And I, I forget what I put around its neck, I can't remember now, but anyway, that this demon was first of all looked so scary, because I knew it was a creation of my mind, I could create something a bit more amusing. And when I saw this demon with its straw hat, I had a flower in the hat, and its sunglasses <laughs> on, and it's half its teeth blacked out and a cigarette in, its, in the corner of its mouth. I laughed. It was so, so funny. And so I totally humiliated that demon and it never ever came back again. It's a waste of time trying to scare Ajahn Brahm, you just get humiliated. So that's a great way, and I taught that to somebody who was going through some weird stuff they were seeing you know, in the paving bricks at Bodhinyana Monastery. These monsters were coming out. I said, no, do what I did. Black out their teeth. You know, instead, if you don't want to put sunglasses on, put a monocle on, like those old English lords. Put a top hat on the top of its head. And after a while, because there's one insight which I noticed a long time ago, you cannot have fear and fun at the same time. If you're happy, jovial, that overcomes fear. And so he did that, he said he did that all morning, and then after a while those monsters never appeared again. Yeah, well done. So that's the dangerous monsters, what you think is dangerous. Have fun with it. And the other type of nimitta, which I must confess, is showing my faults. I think you all know that one of the things which I like to do, I did this as a kid, is I like the cartoons. When I get a newspaper, the first thing I look upon is the cartoons. Some of them are extremely funny. I still remember one of my favorite cartoon strips was Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin was his little school kid. And one of the cartoons, which I'll never forget, that he was in school and his teacher, Miss Wormwood, Strange name for a teacher, Wormwood. Miss Wormwood was teaching the American Constitution. And so Calvin put his hand up and he said, the American Constitution guarantees the right to the pursuit of happiness. And if ignorance is bliss, this school has taken away my constitutional right to be ignorant and pursue happiness that way. I'm out of here. That's actually a, quite a good argument. <laughs> you have a constitutional right not to go to school because ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the other ones was he was trying to sort of invite aliens, like UFOs, to visit. And the aliens wouldn't come. And I think his pet... Um, Tiger, that was um, Hobbes, said, of course, intelligent life would never come to Earth. They're too intelligent to come down here. <laughs> so a couple of those little sayings there, I thought it was just intellectual, funny, but they had a point to it. Anyway, so I was meditating in my cave. I told all the monks about this some time ago. I think many people think they're all Chanda as well. Meditating in my cave, getting really peaceful, very delightful, and then this image appeared in my mind. I knew it was a nimbus at the right time. It was peaceful, blissful, and it was a yellow colour. But not like any yellow. See that Pooh Bear over there? That's so dull compared to what you see, the yellow colour of that bear. So dull compared to the yellows which you see in your nimbus. 
it was just so unworldly and so rich, you know, in its uh, depth of yellowness. More yellow than any yellow you could ever see. So I realized it was an imiter. And then I looked at its shape. You know what its shape was? Garfield the cat. <laughs> I recognized it straight away. <laughs> it had the shape of Garfield the cat. And then when I saw that, I just couldn't help it but laugh. And that was the end of my meditation. <laughs> I think I'm the only monk in the, the world to see the Garfield limiter. <laughs> but I didn't mind, you can get an limiter afterwards you know, when you're meditating a lot. But one of the things which happens is you know it's a limiter because, again, what I keep saying, the depth of that yellowness or the depth of the blue, it's not a blue you can ever see in the world. No painter has a means to create such a colour or any artificial colour scheme. And that's one of the signs. There was this one gentleman, and he was a... Uh, his nimiter, when he first told me, he said it was a black nimiter, jet black nimiter. And I thought, this can't be right, because I've never heard of a black nimiter before. But I said, no, give me more information. He was peaceful, still. Five senses were just so distant from him. He couldn't hear anything, couldn't feel his body. And it was a black like he'd never seen before. It was rich, almost like satin velvet um, blackness. And he said it was a gorgeous colour. And when he said that, I realised, okay, that's a nimiter. I've never had a black nimiter, not ordinary black, but just deeper black than you've ever seen before. That's a sign that these are things are nimiters. And of course, what to do with them? You know what to do with nimiters? Nothing. Have nothing to do with them. I say that as a bit of a joke. I don't mean to get rid of them, that's doing something. Just enjoy them, care for them. And if you can understand what that means, then those nimiters stop moving around and they become very powerful. It was many years, you know, when I had nimiters and sometimes you could use them to disappear. But then other times that they kept moving too much and they couldn't develop any deeper. You know what solved that problem, and I like telling the story, was I was just shaving one morning. This, I was shaving, you know, in my, so many of you saw it, the little office next to my cave, and there's a bathroom in the back there. I was shaving my face, and then I decided to do a little experiment, because I noticed the image in the mirror was moving as I was shaving. So just to prove it to myself, I was shaving, but with one hand I held the mirror perfectly still the image in the mirror was still moving. It's obvious, but that was reinforcing the idea that your nimitta moves, you can hold your mind as still as you like, but that image will still move. It's like the one which is watching has to be still. And when I was still, then the image became still. And that little metaphor, I mean, it's not totally accurate, there's many things wrong with it, but that metaphor helped me so much. Whenever I saw a limiter, I didn't move. The watcher never did anything. It acted like you were frozen, like you were a block of ice or stone or something. When I didn't move, that limiter never moved. And then, that's when it starts to go in to the deep meditations. When he goes into the deep meditations, again, just like the, uh, the firework nimiters, sometimes it's just too exciting, too pleasurable, you don't know what to do with it. And so the first um, jhanas which people experience are often what I call, I just gave it this name, ping pong jhanas. It's like a ping pong ball, bounce in and bounce out, bounce in and bounce out. You've not really got it together yet to be able to stay in there. You taste some of the bliss, which is amazing, you come out again too fast. And so, in order to get out of that ping-pong nimitta state, or ping-pong jhana state, 
I just developed this for three stages of any uh, place in meditation where you've never been before. Some people that might be just the uh, the delightful breath. You haven't experienced that before. What the heck is it? So the three stages, the number one, recognition, number two, familiarity, and number three, ease. So when these things happen, say like the delightful breath, uh, a lot of people say, what is a delightful breath? I can watch the breath, but I never had any delight with it. But after a while, you start to recognize that. You're meditating, and you don't know why, but sometimes you're meditating, and the breath becomes so lovely. You start to recognize that's a delightful breath. Ah, oh, that's what he means. And then after you have recognition, the next thing is you become familiar with it. A good example of that from your daily life is your room in which you're staying, in the cottage in which you're staying. When you first arrived here, if this is your first time in China Grove, you go and explore it, your room, and usually the first night you never have a good night's sleep. It's a new place, and the mind is not sort of, on the body is not really relaxed yet. You don't feel really safe. But then after a few days you get familiarity with your room and your shower and your toilet and you know the kettle or whatever else is there in the, the common area. And once you've got familiar with it, then you go on to the more relaxed. After about eight or nine days, many of you, it's like your home, my room. And you feel just this wonderful sense of safety and just like you would if you were in your own house, back in Singapore or whatever. And that's so similar of every new stage in meditation which you encounter. You recognize it. Once you recognize it, it takes away the fear. And sometimes you don't know, is this a, is this a trap? Is Ajahn Brahm trying to take over my mind? <laughs> if I was, I'd have done that by now, so you're quite safe. So you feel that safety which then like being familiar and then being totally relaxed. Sometimes, you know in Singapore, if you go to temples there, sometimes you're afraid of those monks so much you respect them over much. Like yesterday, I think after the talk, I was sitting here for a little bit longer and then I think as PJ said, Ajahn Brahm, there's many people here waiting for you to leave so they can leave. And honestly, you can leave whenever you want. You don't have to wait for me. I give you total permission for that. We said, we're not used to that. You're afraid it's gonna, is it gonna make good, bad karma by you sitting in here while I'm, or you leaving when I'm still sitting in here? Answer, no. And sometimes, you know, you've known me for such a long time, and you do get familiar with me. I don't mean like breaking any rules, but cracking jokes, and just opening the door for me, or whatever it is. And well done, thank you for doing that. It means you're relaxing, not feeling afraid. And after a while you recognize what real respect is. Real respect, in respect for your teacher, for your parents. How do you make them happy? By being a really good person. So, this is actually where when we get things like nimittas. That's why I talk a lot about them, because they will happen to you sooner or later. And when they do happen, these beautiful lights, you know how to deal with them. You recognize them, become familiar with them, and then you can be at ease with them. Let them do their job. It's all cause and effect, nothing more. And I know just to make it, make it clear, I know there was some monks not many, I think one in particular some time ago said, Ajahn Brahm, the Buddha never talks about nimittas. And I said, yes he does. I said, where? And fortunately I know my suttas, and it's in uh, sutta number, is it 128 I think? Yeah, 128, it's called Imperfections, Upikalesa Sutta. If you read that, 
it mentions nimittas all the time in there and the problems with the nimittas and how to solve those problems. And unfortunately though, the, the translation doesn't use the word nimitta. They usually say that thing or something. In other words, sometimes the fault is in the English translation. If you see it in the Pali, it's just right in front of you. You can't ignore it. It's a sutta which is specifically is about the obstacles to nimittas. Too much energy, too little energy, whatever. And then the main thing about that sutta, the two biggest obstacles is the excitement and the fear. Just relax, enjoy. It's free happiness for you, immense happiness. You have a wonderful time in these nimittas. I think you can trust me on that one, that I don't sort of try to deceive you on these nimitta things. Have a great time. And then once those nimittas get really strong, then it's such a small distance from them into the jhana. And when the jhana happens, you don't see a light. Your object then becomes bliss. And in those jhanas, four different types of bliss, like four different flavors. The next one always more delightful than the last. And they are fantastic because then you really are separated from the five senses. You're free of them for a while. And you get more data, more experience, what this jitter, what this mind really is. And what it does and how it works. And I said like the Buddha's simile of like the, the goldsmith, purifying the gold first of all. And then you can find out what its qualities are. Or like the Buddha's simile, if there's water and it's got some dust in it, or dirt, mud, you can't see to the very bottom. But when the mind is purified, no fish in it, nothing, just pure water, and it's still, then you can see right to the bottom. Or like that other simile which I mentioned about uh, when the lake is still, up in the mountains, perfectly still, it's not moving at all then you can see this accurate reflection of the moon and the stars in the heavens above. Accurate. And that's why the Buddha said specifically that uh, samadhi pachaya yatabhutayana dasana It's from that stillness you see things as they truly are. Yatabhuta as they are Yana dasana, the insight. That's said so clearly in Pali so many times. It's like a common phrase. And what it's saying there is from that stillness, that's how you see insights, true ones. That's one of the reasons why to be a stream winner. <laughs> It doesn't say so specifically, but it implies it very strongly. The only way to see things as they truly are, which is the inside of being a street winner, is having had that samadhi, sama samadhi, the jhana. It'd be so still, you see different things than you've ever seen before. So there we go, that's nine o'clock. Nimittas and jhanas, a little bit about jhanas. I don't need to say too much about jhanas because once you're in there you can enjoy them for yourself and understand them more completely. I should actually say that while you're in a jhana you can't think. Thinking is just so stilled, it can't happen. So if any time you're in a deep meditation you say, oh this must be jhana, sorry. <laughs> That's a certain no-no. If you're in a jhana, and are you asleep? Absolutely not. Really, more wide awake than you've ever been before. But poised, still. And when you come out, again, that's a certainty. When you come out of a jhana, you're blissed out. You're just walking on air. Ah, jhana grove is lovely. But really over the top lovely. Because your mind has been empowered. Those are the times you know you have been in jhana. But while you're in there, just enjoy it. You can't do anything anyway. That's why I don't give you any instructions. You're already in, so enjoy. When you come out, ooh, 
that's where you start to see amazing things. Sad. Sad. <laughs> okay. I wish you a pleasant morning. If you wish, you don't have to have a pleasant morning. It's totally up to you. I do not wish to control you. <laughs> or give you orders. <laughs>